good morning, everybody. We're so glad you have joined us. Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. We're going to begin our morning with some worship, if you guys would stand with us and, and sing.
erzählen. As we were just singing that song, I was kind of thinking those, about those words and thinking about the book of Daniel that we've been going through and how in the book of Daniel, right, God's people are in exile. Things look terrible for God's people. Right? And yet, as we just sang, like, God knows the ending from the beginning. Right? Even as his people were in exile, things look bleak, bleak for the people of God. Like He saw today. He saw you being here. He saw all the events that would come to you being here in this place. And he thinks even beyond that to all the good things he had planned for all of us. Right? That that be an encouragement for you this morning, whatever you're going through, God sees the end from where you are now. He has all things worked out. Well, if you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us this morning. With a couple of announcements to bring to your attention. One is that following our service, normally we would go downstairs and enjoy fellowship and snacks and coffee downstairs together, but this morning, immediately following our service, we're going to head over to Maple Lake, and we're going to celebrate a couple of baptisms out there this morning, and so we'd invite you to join us for that. We'd invite you, encourage you to bring a picnic, lunch, something to eat, um, if you're able to bring chairs, to hang, hang out afterwards, just enjoy a time of fellowship out there. If you didn't bring a lunch, there's a subway on the way, you're, you, know, you can figure that out. Next Sunday, following our service, we will have our our quarterly meeting, just going to give some updates on, on the church. Um, so we'd encourage you to be a part of that as well, especially if you're a member here at the church. And then a couple of Sundays following that, on September 10th, following our service, we will have a harvest fest where we will celebrate, we'll dedicate the new nursery and the playground outside and just in, kind of kick off the school year and just enjoy fellowship together with that as well. There are details about that in your bulletin as well. You know, we're just glad that you're here with us this morning as we come together to, to worship God and to be together as the people he has brought together in this place this morning. And so as we continue in the time of worship, would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for the chance to gather. We thank you that... We're just saying, you know the ending from the beginning, that you have all things worked out, that you are in the process of bringing about your good purposes, that even when things seem dark and bleak as they did for the people of Judah and Babylonian exile, you are still at work. As we gather this morning, some of us come with burdens and heavy hearts and facing difficulties. I pray that you would encourage us, you would give us hope in that truth, that you have all things worked out, that you know the end of whatever we're going through right now, and it is ultimately for our good and for your glory, that in the end you will come back, Jesus, and you will usher in the new heavens and the new earth where we will worship you forever with no more pain or suffering or tears or death. As we wait for that day, Father, would you encourage us, would you give us 
perseverance, the faith, the trials that this life offered. Would you help us to find joy in fellowship with one another and in doing the work you have given us to do? Father, as we sing now, as we worship you this morning, would our hearts pour forth worship? Would they bring you honor and glory and praise? But all that we do here this morning serve to bring you honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand with me as we continue to sing.
Father, we thank you that whatever we face, whatever trial, whatever challenges you carry us through by your grace. in the midst of all life's challenges, we turn and trust that you will carry us by your grace. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> there was a time, a number of years ago, back before kids and whatever when my wife and I actually had some free time and and in those moments one of the things we enjoyed to do with our free time was playing board games. We played a lot of board games together. So in the summer after we graduated from college we had or after we got married, we were still in college and we had like tons of free time. We had like had part time job but we were still in college and so we played a ton of this game called Ticket to Ride. And we were both pretty competitive people, and so instead of just like playing one game and seeing who won and then moving on, we, we started keeping a running tally right, of, of the score throughout the entire summer to see who would win over the course of the whole summer. And I don't remember who the ultimate winner was. <laughs> probably not a great sign for me. I don't, but I probably would remember if I had won, so probably not, not good. <laughs> But we were like super into board games. And a little bit after that, we started playing this game called Seven Wonders. The basic premise of this game is that each player who is playing is playing as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And you're trying to accumulate points by building whatever wonder you represent. So you're trying to build either the Great Pyramid in Giza or the Lighthouse in Alexandria or the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus or the Statue of Zeus at Olympia, right? and like, before I played the game, I had this like general knowledge, right, that, that there were these seven wonders of the ancient world, and they were things that existed, and all of this, but what I didn't realize is like how much overlap, and how much intertwining these seven wonders have with events in the Bible, right? like when Joseph, and Moses, and the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, right? That the Great Pyramid was already there. They were slaves in the, pure, in the shadow of the Great Pyramid of Giza. When Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians in Ephesus, one of the things he's really fighting to combat is temple worship, because the Temple of Artemis is the central hub of life in Ephesus at that time. It's a big deal. And so Paul is writing against the worship at the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. And then Daniel here, like, Daniel likely writes and lives and works in Babylon throughout the construction of the hanging gardens of Babylon. And, like, I used to think when I heard hanging gardens, like, my brain, like, picture my brain with, like, a bunch of, like, hanging potted plants, like, hanging from hooks or something. That's not what hanging gardens are, apparently. Hanging gardens are, like, this terraced, like, just tons of plants on the big terraced structure, right? And so, but it's built during the time Daniel was living in Babylon. 
but the commonly accepted story about behind the Garden of the Babylon is that King Nebuchadnezzar built these gardens for his wife because she had come from this place where there was lots of plant life and lush green hills and she missed all the greenery and so he built these fancy gardens for her. And so most commentators think that something like 20 to 30 years elapsed between the end of Daniel chapter 3 and the start of Daniel chapter 4. So if you're just like doing a Bible reading plan, you're just reading through Daniel, you finish Daniel 3 and you come to Daniel 4 and you just assume they're like right after one another, that they kind of follow after each other closely. But actually there's a 20 to 30 year gap between the two chapters. And it's likely in that 20 to 30 year gap that the hanging gardens are built by King Nebuchadnezzar. It's in that 20 to 30 year gap that the Babylonian Empire kind of reaches its height. It's kind of powerful. It's conquered what it wants to conquer. And so Nebuchadnezzar can focus on luxuries and extravagances like hanging gardens instead of the nuts and bolts of building an empire. And so as we come to Daniel chapter 4 this morning, Nebuchadnezzar is very much kind of enjoying the fruits of his labors. At the height of his power, he's enjoying all that he has built in Babylon. And this 20 to 30 year gap also helps make sense of the apparent change that we see in King Nebuchadnezzar from the end of chapter 3 to the start of chapter 4. Chapter 3 ends with, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, only to see them saved. And he sees them saved, and he, he, he makes this declaration. He says, The people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should be cut into pieces, and their houses turned to piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. It seems at the end of chapter 3 that he's had some kind of understanding of who the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is. But then at the start of chapter 4, seems to have forgotten and is just ignoring God. Which is kind of hard to fathom when you read them back to back. But when you realize there's a 20 or 30 year gap between the two, and that those 20 and 30 years were likely filled with worldly success, which can often lessen our dependence on God, then it starts to make a bit more sense why Nebuchadnezzar would have this change. So we come to chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is at the height of his power, seemingly no longer interested in anything about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. And in this chapter, chapter 4, he has a dream, which at first seems to kind of confirm his power, but then turns scary. And so just from, so just as in, in chapter 2, Back then, he called Daniel to interpret his dream for him. See, it's the same thing here in Daniel chapter 4. He calls in Daniel to interpret his dream and tell him what it's all about. And this chapter, Daniel chapter 4, is interesting, kind of unique in all the Bible, because it's written seemingly from and by King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, verse 1 says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. That sounds like how Paul starts his letter. This is a letter written by a pagan king that's included in the Bible. 
And so in this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar kind of lay out all that has happened to him. And he can invite us to learn from his experience. We're going to start in verse 10. as He describes his dream to Daniel. He had the dream and he calls in Daniel and says, These are the visions I saw while I was lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animal found shelter, and the bird lived in its branches. And from it, every creature was fed. So from King Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, this, this seems like a great start to the dream. It seems pretty obvious that the tree represents the Babylonian Empire. And it has beautiful leaves, and it's caring for all the creatures under it, and it all seems great. It all sounds wonderful. And Nebuchadnezzar is proud that he's built this marvelous empire that's described like this in this dream. Everything sounds great up to this point for Nebuchadnezzar. But if you know your Bible a little bit, then there's already warning signs in this passage. Because this tree represents Babylon. And it's described as having a top that touched the sky. Or in other translations, a top that reached the heavens. And that should call to mind another structure that was built in Babylon where the goal was to touch the heavens. This is a callback, an allusion to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel was built in Babylon. And here's how Genesis 11 describes that tower. The people said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Their goal in building that tower, just like Nebuchadnezzar's goal in building Babylon, and building things like the Hanging Gardens, was to make a name for themselves. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's after, to make a name for himself. And in the Tower of Babel story, then God comes down from heaven. We're seeing God come down, where he then comes down to humble the people and put them in their place. Which is also what happened in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Continuing in verse 13. In the vision I saw lying in bed, I looked. And there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animal flee from under it and the bird from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from the man, that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. So everything goes from looking great for Nebuchadnezzar to looking awful. 
the tree is cut down. And there's this strange flip in verse 15 where the author goes from talking about the tree to talking about a person. They go from it to him. That's about this person who's going to be given the mind of an animal. And then the dream ends with a declaration of why all this is going to happen. In verse 17, we read this. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict. Why? So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone He wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. And this verse is kind of the heart of this passage. We're going to come back to it in a minute, but let me kind of finish up the rest of the story here. So in verse 20, then Daniel comes in and he offers his interpretation of the dream, and he says this to Nebuchadnezzar, The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the heavens, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to wild animals, and having nesting places, and it branches for the bird. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. But Daniel confirmed what Nebuchadnezzar must have suspected, right? that the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. But what about that second part? Daniel tells him, Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze. In the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, Your Majesty. And this is the decree the Most High hath issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone He wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its root means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. That's the interpretation of the dream. That Nebuchadnezzar is going to, because of his pride, be driven to live like an animal. To live outside and be covered in dew in the morning and have to eat, live off grass like an ox. That's Daniel's interpretation of the dream. And then he ends by appealing to the king. In verse 27 he says, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. And so Daniel urges Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his sins in order to kind of stave off these events. He urges Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his pride and being the one who built this Babylonian empire. He urges Nebuchadnezzar to stop 
trying to take all the credit for how great Babylon is. Otherwise, the Lord is going to come and humble him by causing him to live like a wild animal for seven years. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen to Daniel. In verse 29, we read, Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this, is not this, the great Babylon I have built at the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? You can just feel like the pride and the arrogance dripping from his lips. My, I have built my mighty power, my majesty. But it goes on. Even as these words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and give them to anyone he wishes. And immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. So for seven years, then, Nebuchadnezzar lives like this. He lives like a wild animal, eating grass like an ox. He's unkempt and he's ungroomed and he's out in the wild and he's like, it's all in response to his pride. But finally, after seven years, God restored Nebuchadnezzar and we read this in verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lived forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endure from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisor and noble sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. As we've been going through this book of Daniel, one of the things we've been trying to do is answer the question, what does it mean to live faithfully as an exile in a culture hostile to God? Daniel and his friends were, were taken out, taken out of, out of their home in Judah to live in this pagan culture in Babylon. At this point in the story, like Daniel had been serving as one of King Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand men for something like 30 years. 
he has been both valuable to King Nebuchadnezzar and faithful to God. And somehow he's managed not to lose hope after all these years in exile that God is still working out his good plans. There's a lot for us to learn here. Daniel served as an example of how to live as an exile that is both faithful to God and trusting God while living in a culture that wants nothing to do with God. That's a challenge we find ourselves facing. We face the question, like, what does it look like to live on this earth as, in Paul's word, a citizen of heaven? What does it look like to live on this earth as, in Peter's word, sojourners and exiles? And Daniel offers some guidance for us. I think we do well to listen to and learn from Daniel here. And what we see in, in this passage in particular this morning is that living as an exile means feeling neither too much hope or too much despair over worldly leaders. Feeling neither too much hope nor too much despair over worldly leaders. And it's striking how more and more we are led to feel either one of those two emotions in regard to world events all the time. There was a, a recent study that looked at the prevalence of emotive word in news headlines. It looked at the year 2000 either to the year 2019. And what they found over the span, there was a, a drastic increase in emotionally charged words that were used in headlines. The study found that there was a 104% increase in words meant to elicit anger in headlines. There was a 150% increase in words meant to elicit fear. A 54% increase in words meant to elicit sadness. There was even a 14% increase in words meant to bring out joy. So it worked on both ends of the emotional spectrum. The only category that they found a marked drop in was the usage of neutral words. They found that emotionally neutral words were used 30% less in 2019 than the year 2000. And it was on a clear downward trend. Like the graph is headed down continually, so I doubt it's reversed course since 2019. We're being increasingly conditioned and taught by our culture to find everything as either incredibly hopeful or incredibly bleak. There's no middle ground. And nowhere is it more clear than in the world of political leaders. If our preferred candidate wins, everything is sunshine and roses and everything's going to be great. But if our preferred candidate loses, then the world's coming to an end, right? All this hopeless, our country is falling apart, like nothing good can possibly come of this. I just think of the like, election night parties you watch on TV. Right? Like those parties where like, the supporters all gather in some hotel ba- ballroom and like, they watch the results come in. And for those at the party of the candidate who wins, like, it's like a rocket celebration, like their team just won the Super Bowl. But at the party for the candidate who loses, right? You would think that like a superior race of aliens just told us they were going to destroy the earth world in 30 days. 
Like, it's like that level of despair in the room. We react either overly joyfully or overly despairingly. There's no middle ground. And it's so easy, like for me at least, to get sucked into that mindset. That the news is incredibly good at fueling that mindset. Because that mindset is what keeps you watching the news. And the more you watch the news, the more they can charge for ads. It's funny, but it's sad and it's true. And to combat that kind of mindset, we need verses like Daniel 4.17. The Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. He gives them to anyone He wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. The Most High, sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth, and gives them to anyone He wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. This verse should keep us from feeling either too much hope or too much despair in who our worldly leaders are. Like, if your candidate lost, or you don't like the person in charge, well, like, the most highest sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth. He gives them to anyone he wishes. Like, God is still in control no matter who's in power, whether you like him or not. Okay? And if your candidate wins, or you like the person in charge, well, like, God sets over them the lowliest of people. Sometimes God says lowly people over nations, so maybe you shouldn't put too much hope in that guy. Because right? Daniel just called them the lowliest of people. Like this verse and others like it ought to break us of the hope and despair that, that so many of us face during election season. So I don't usually like telling you to do something as I'm preaching, but I want you to do this if you want to. I'm giving you permission to get out your phone, use a digital calendar right now, and go to November 5th, 2024. If you want, go ahead, do it. I'll give you a minute. November 5th, 2024, on your calendar. Go there. Create an event. Just title it, Daniel 417. November 5th, 2024, the next presidential election. And no matter the outcome of that day, this verse is true. No matter what happens on November 5th, 2024, this verse is true. We shouldn't get too excited if our guy wins or too despairing if our person loses. God put that person, whoever it is, over this nation. And it just might be that that person is the lowliest of people. But God still put that person in charge. And Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was sovereign over the nation of Babylon. He thought that he could take credit for the growth of his empire and for building things like the Hanging Gardens. But God taught him through years of insanity 
that Nebuchadnezzar was not actually as powerful or significant as he thought he was. And the same thing is true for rulers of every nation on earth. They are not as powerful or significant as they think they are or as we tend to think they are. The lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned is true for all rulers at all times. Here again is how Nebuchadnezzar summed up the lesson that he learned through all this. I praise the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lived forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endure from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does that He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. <clears throat> no one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? That's a lesson <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar learned. That's a lesson that each of us can stand to learn. And of course, what is true of nations is also true of us as individuals. We have the tendency to, to think of ourselves as little kings or queens of our own lives. We see ourselves as our own little empire with a population of one. Where we're in total control and anything good that we do, we deserve credit for. No one should be able to tell us what to do because we're our own sovereign empire and power. We have thoughts like Nebuchadnezzar's when we think, Look at what I built by my power for the glory of my majesty. We think that. Like, look at what I've done for myself. Look at the life I've built for myself. Look at the house I bought and the car I have and the career success I've experienced. Like, look at what I've done by my power. And I should receive the majesty and the glory for it. And no one, not even God, should be able to interfere with my desires and my wishes. But we need to learn from Nebuchadnezzar right, that God does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back to His hand or say to Him, What have you done? He does as He pleases. But the good news is, that what He pleases to do is to work things for good for those who trust in Him. For those who trust in Jesus. The thing that God pleases to do is to conform us to the image of His Son. And nothing can, can hold Him back from doing so. God will bring about His purposes even when it seems impossible. In Babylon, it looked like the Babylonian gods were winning. It looked like Daniel's god was losing. But then these events happen and make it clear that that is not the case. Even when things looked bleak, God was still at work bringing about his good purposes. Nowhere is this more clear than in the crucifixion of Jesus. God's son, Jesus, is arrested. He's on trial. It looks like the Romans are winning and 
God is losing. But as Jesus stands on trial before Pontius Pilate, do you remember what he said to Pilate? He says this, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus stands on trial with seemingly no power before Pontius Pilate seems to have all the power. He tells him, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So Pilate sent Jesus to his crucifixion where it looked like God had well and truly lost. God's son had been killed it was like the empire of the earth had won. But then God raised Jesus on the third day. And now all who trust in Jesus can have their sins forgiven because Jesus died on that cross for the forgiveness of your sins. He died in your place. Even in the death of His own Son, God was bringing about His Purposes. No one could hold back his hand. No one could say to him, what have you done in letting your son die? Because he worked even in that, his good purposes. And when we trust in Jesus, when we put our faith in Christ, our view of ourselves as a little empire with a population of one disappears. When we have trusted in Jesus, we can no longer say, look at what I've built by my power. We can no longer say, look at what I've done for the glory of my majesty. Paul writes about his experience trusting Jesus, and he says this. He described it this way. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I no longer live, Paul says. When we have been crucified with Christ, when we've trusted in Jesus, and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. It's no longer about our own glory, our own achievements. When we go down and celebrate baptisms after the service, we're celebrating this kind of identification with Jesus. By being lowered into the water, those being baptized are identifying with Jesus in his death. And if they come out of the water, it's a way of saying, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Believing in Jesus ought to be the most humbling thing we can do. Anything good we do and achieve is because Christ lives in me. Not because I've done some great thing. Because we leave here this morning. I urge you to go and leave remembering two things. 
first that God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. He gives them to anyone He wishes. He sets over them the lowliest of people. And so we don't have to despair or get too hopeful over the state of our earthly leaders. And the second thing we should remember is we don't live this life for our own fame or for our own glory. We don't spend our lives building hanging gardens so we can be famous like Nebuchadnezzar. The life we live in this body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, that we live for his glory. That all that we do, not for ourselves, but for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, we thank you that you are indeed sovereign over all nations of the earth and over all that takes place on the earth and that nothing can stop your plan from coming to fruition. And we thank you that you are a God who loves us and God who cares for us. And that your plans are for our good. That the plans that cannot be stopped are plans for our good. The fathers, we live this life. We walk through trials and struggles that come from living in a fallen and broken world. Would we remember that? That nothing can stop your plans and your plans are for our good. As we live through election cycles and ups and downs of political life, would you remind us that ultimately it's you who's in charge, you set in power those who you deem fit. And sometimes you use even the lowliest of people. But that you're still in control. Even when the person in charge is someone like King Nebuchadnezzar, who's all about his own fame, his own glory, serving Babylonian gods, you are still sovereign. Would you help us to never find too much joy or too much despair in who our leaders are? Would you help us to be faithful as we live on this earth, remembering that above all we are citizens of your kingdom first, and not a kingdom on this earth? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we would encourage you to head out quickly here after church, head down to Maple Lake, uh, down by the lake, down by Cy Williams Park down there. We will start our, we're hoping to start the bathrooms around 1045, kind of the target time.
I encourage you to make your way down there and enjoy fellowship together down there. You are dismissed.